Acts chapter number 15, and we will be reading verses 1 through 11. Beginning in verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas, and certain other of them, should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church, and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together for to consider, for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Mm -hmm. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the Bible. We thank you that men were moved to write down the words that you would have us as your people to have. We thank you that according to your providential plan, you have preserved it for us to this day. We thank you for the book of Acts, which shows us how the gospel went forth from Jerusalem and through Judea, Samaria, and then even to uttermost parts of the earth as the Gentiles were believing and being saved. And as we come to this passage where there was a doctrinal dispute in these early days, we pray that as the word is taught concerning what happened, that you would apply it to this church, that you would give us a right understanding, that you would keep us and increase us in doctrinal purity, and then also in a right way of living according to your word, that we would truly have, as your word tells us, the obedience of faith. We pray these things for your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Amen, so good to uh, be gathered again, once again, the Lord, by his good pleasure, by his providence, brings us together, and for sure it is his, for his glory that we have his word in our hands this morning. Um, there's nothing worse than one who is to be a preacher and uh, stand up before those who are sitting before him and he begins to dispel his own ideas. That is a very bad 
That's a very bad thing, amen, amen. to take place. And so we're so thankful, as Brother Dean just prayed, that God did indeed inspire these men to write. And we have before us, as we go verse by verse, for those who visit once in a while or have never been here, we go verse by verse expository through the Bible. And so we are in the middle, if you will, of the inspired record, amen, the inspired narrative of the early church history. And so this is what we've been doing. We've been just kind of going along uh, ever faithfully, through the book of Acts, and this morning as we look at the Jerusalem Council, one of the, well, first, actually, the first council to meet together to indeed discuss and to set straight and to keep straight, amen, these wonderful doctrines that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have been preaching. Puritan minister John Flavel once said this, how dangerous it is to join anything of our own righteousness to Christ in the pursuit of justification before God. It is a dangerous thing, brother, to add anything to Christ. Christ plus nothing. The word of God plus nothing. God's grace plus nothing. This is what Flavel is saying. If one adds anything to the gospel, and we're going to look at the five solas, because the five solas are present in our text this morning. It's an amazing thing, brethren, as we see this. Flavel goes on. Jesus Christ will never endure this, for it reflects upon his work unfavorably and dishonorably, he says. He will be all or none in our justification. You're either justified through Christ, period, or you're not justified. Yep. That's it. This is the idea. This is what Brother Flavel was saying. If he has finished the work, what need is there of any of our addition? And if not, to what purpose are they? Can we finish that which Christ could not finish? Oh, brother, it's an amazing thing when you consider what religion does to people. It's a stunning thing. Christianity is one thing. Religion is something completely different. It adds, I mean, it adds this, it adds that. It adds everything to Christ's finished work. It's a stunning thing. It really is when you see that. Flavel continues, did he finish the work and then ever divide the glory and praise of it with us? No, no. Christ is no divided Savior. He is Savior or he's not. Martin Luther once said this. When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the linchpin by which one is saved. What we're talking about, what... What uh, Paul is going to address, what Peter stands up in our text and addresses, is the linchpin to all of salvation. It really is. He said, this is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. And that's absolutely true. It is, he continued, the master and prince, the lord and ruler, and judge over all kinds doctrines. We find, brethren, this morning in the oldest book in the Bible. You realize Genesis is not the oldest book in the Bible. Genesis is first because it's inspired by Moses as he wrote the beginning of things. Genesis, that's what it means. But the oldest book in the Bible, if it was Wednesday evening, Bible study, I'd ask you, you know which one it is. Three letters, Job. And in the oldest book that we have preserved within the Holy Scriptures, I want us to turn there. There is the oldest question that all of us must consider this morning, even as we lay the foundation for our text, which is what we're doing. The oldest, one of the oldest questions ever asked in the oldest book in the Bible is this. Turn with me if you would. And this question is not asked once. 
in the book of Job. Not twice, but several times. This question is asked. How is one justified before God? And again, brethren, this is the question that we all must consider. How am I justified before God? Look there, if you would, in the book of Job. I want, to, I want you to hear this from the inspired record. Job chapter 9. Look at Job chapter 9, first of all. This is, we're just going to read a couple of them, but as I said, this question was asked on several occasions. Look at Job chapter 9, verse number 1. Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should a man be just with God? That's a great question, isn't it? How can one be justified before a thrice holy God? Look what he says there. And if he contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. Look at the second one. Look at Job chapter 25 again. This is not Job asking the question. This is his historical partner asking the question. You know, and his three friends who were allegedly friends. Bilidad's uh, asking this question. Look at uh, Job 25. Look at verse number 4. How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man, that is a worm, the son of man, which is a worm. Now, brethren, that is an old, old question. How can one be justified before God? In fact, it is one of the oldest skirmishes and wars and battles that have gone on throughout Scripture. How is one justified before God? It is raged on from the very first time, brethren, listen, that a fallen man, his wife, and one of his sons tried to be justified before God with the fruits of their own hands. This is something that is older than almost dirt, brethren. It's an amazing thing how man, there's something innately within him, who wants to claim credit for something that only God can do. He wants to claim credit for his salvation. Can't we just give a little? Can't I just give just a little bit to God? No, brethren, you cannot. You cannot do that. In fact, if we look at Genesis again, just laying the groundwork here for our text, this mingling of religious works with the glorious saving work of God has been, again, a problem from the foundation of man. Look there, if you would, at Genesis chapter 3. This, again, is where it all starts. And the question is asked, and we see here in Genesis chapter 3, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. Again, Genesis, the beginning of things. It tells us a lot of things, how it began. The beginning of creation, the creation of man. Hey, the first lie that's ever told. Amen. There's many firsts in the book of Genesis. It literally means the beginning. But, again, we see here in this very uh, uh, familiar portion of Scripture to us, I want you to see verse number 7, if you would, this morning with me. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Brother, many times we read over that text and it's just, oh, they're making themselves some aprons. Really what they're doing here, this is the first act of a religious person. They are trying to cover their own sin that they've just committed. They have perfect fellowship with God. They were with him in the garden, amen, and we see then what happens. The first sin that ever tainted a man or a woman caused this to happen. 
In fact, we see in our text, again, as we see the work of God, look at verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden of the, uh, in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves immediately when one realizes they're sinners. They hide themselves from a holy God. You don't want anybody. Brother, just this past week, you don't want anybody to show up here on this screen what possibly you might have struggled with this week. We want that kept hid, but God is there seeing it. Same thing with Adam and Eve. In fact, you look at the question. Now, as God asks these two questions in verse number 9, it hid themselves, verse 8, from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now look at this question. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, again, God's question to Adam really tells us two things really early on in the beginning. Number one, that man is lost, he's hid. And number two, it is God who seeks. It's God who seeks the lost sinner. The lost sinner hides himself from God. God came looking for Adam. This is what really God... Did God know where Adam was? Of course he did. He's bringing out in Adam his realization of what he's just done. The sin that you have committed has separated me from you. That perfect relationship that we had has been severed. In fact, Genesis chapter 4, if we go there again, the son, we remember what took place there. Cain and Abel. Well, we're right there. Let's just read that together again. So the mother and father tried to hide themselves. In fact, the Lord, the Bible says back with Adam and Eve, it says the Lord had to, what? Kill an animal and cover Adam and Eve. That was the work of God. Adam and Eve tried to sew their own aprons. God says, nope, that is not going to do. I'm going to have to do it for you. And so this is what we see, his parents. Look at the first son. Look at the son here as he reacts, the two sons. Look at verse number three. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse number 3, the Bible says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now, brethren, the question becomes here as these things are asked. How can I be justified with God is indeed a matter of life and death. It is not that Abel lived a better life than Cain, brother. They were both sinners, all right? Their parents sinned. They were born in the image of Adam just like we all are. We're all sinners separated from God because of our sin. No, Cain and Abel were both sinners. It wasn't that Abel lived a better life than Cain did. It was this, brother, that Cain or Abel offered up to God a lamb, which is a what? A picture and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. This is God's plan. This is his glorious saving work that he's going to be doing. And what did Cain do? Cain brought forth what? The fruit of his own hands. He brought forth what? Fruit. And brethren, this is, the, this is really the dividing wall. One brings forth a saving faith. One brings forth one where he is condemned. Because of his own righteous works. Think of that for a moment. We live in such a religious world. Such a religious society. Just ask people. Uh, if you stood before the gates, if we can say that, right? If you stood and asked the Lord God, why should I let you in heaven? 99% of the people are going to say what? I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad ones. I hope I've been good enough. Well, brethren, hoping ain't enough. It is a condemning thing. And really, this is our text. This is where 
comes from. It's an amazing thing. Now, brother, think of this for a moment. Throughout various times in history, godly leaders have met together to counsel together in order to keep straight those already settled and essential biblical truths. I mean, there's seven of them that stick out. We don't have time this morning to talk about them all. But over the period of time, men, godly men, have gathered together. They've opened their Bibles and said, what's being taught about this is error. Especially when it comes to those things that are essential and fundamental. We think, brethren, don't we, of one particularly of the Nicene Council. The Nicene Council was gathered together. Why? Why were the godly men of the Nicene Council gathered together? Because there was some aberrant doctrine being taught about the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, him fundamentally, amen, and his nature. So the godly people said, wait a minute, we've got some serious error about who Christ is here, the person of Christ, and we must gather together and we must reaffirm these biblical truths. That the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the perfect God-man. That he lived in his hypostatic union, perfectly as God and perfectly as man. This is what they were discussing, and this is what they laid out and said, okay, brother, send this out to all the Bible-believing churches. This is what we're teaching about Christ. And brethren, this morning, we're right in the middle of the first council concerning the personhood of Christ. How, again, is one justified before God? How does one come into the presence of God and, and, and stand there righteous before God? In fact, brethren, think of this for a moment, just from a practical point. Think of just the recent uh, errors that have been taught about Christ in the church. Anybody familiar with the Dallas Statement? We have it on our website. If you're not familiar with what that is, that has to do with that aberrant and holy social justice gospel, which is not a gospel that saves nobody. And so we have to gather men together and say, that's an error, that's aberrant, that will save no one. And so the Dallas Statement, again, like we even have on our own website, which brings us this morning, brethren, to our text, to the first and most significant council known as the Jerusalem Council. This council kept straight and reinforced the most momentous doctrine, again, that, that is between life and death. The doctrine, if you will, concerning how can a man be justified with God? How is one saved? And again, this is the very heart of our text. Let's turn there this morning. Look at verses 1 and 2. Look at Acts chapter 15. Look at verses 1 and 2. The momentous occasion, again, has happened throughout time and history that godly men have had to gather together and say, there's a doctrinal error here, there's an issue here. Let us gather together and make sure it is kept straight and sound. Look at verse number one. A certain men which came down from Judea taught the brother and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be what? Saved. Now, brother, you realize there are different degrees of fighting in the Bible. They're always talking about fighting. Yes, there are different degrees of fighting in the Bible and fighting for what is right and true. You realize that. Paul dealt with many issues in Corinth, didn't he? Many issues in Corinth. Everything from a brother taking another brother to court. Another one, you know, there, there's a lot of sectarianism going on within the church. I'm of this guy, I'm of that guy. Paul dealt with a lot of that, and we deal with it today even in churches. Amazing, right, right, brother? It's just amazing. You, you see that happen, and yet none of those, none of those issues 
rose to the occasion that we're going to see here. Do you know why? Because what you believe about how you're saved is life and death. It's eternal life or eternal death. Paul talked to them. He warned them other ones. He does way more than that here when it comes to the central doctrine of who Christ is. There are times when you must fight. And fight rather sternly and hardly, heartily for the truth. Look at verse 2. There, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others uh, of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. Now again, brother. This again goes to the heart of what Paul and Barnabas have been doing. They've just returned from their first missionary journey. The Spirit called them back to the church. Remember last week? And we saw that. That they would lead everywhere they went with what? The gospel. They would go in and preach the gospel. And then the Bible, the Spirit of God, then would sink that gospel down into the hearts and ears of the men. And they'd be saved. It's an amazing thing, brother. Paul always, always led with the gospel. That is the power of God unto salvation. We looked at that last week. It's really quite... An amazing thing when you think about that. He had been preaching that one is saved by the finished work of Solus Christus. Which means what, brother? Christ alone. Amen? The Solus. Through sola fide, faith alone. And again, people think the Reformers made this up. No, it's all right here in our text. The Reformers didn't make it up. All they did is brought it forward. That Again, correcting the church that had erred so far away. They had added so many things to Christ. Christ plus salvation. Christ plus my prayers. Christ plus the saints. Christ plus, Christ plus. That's all it was in the reformers. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. No, there's some doctrine here, brother, that we must, again, reaffirm. And so here, Paul, as he's been preaching all along the way, has been preaching sola Christus. Christ alone. Through what? Sola fide. Faith alone. This has been his glorious message. In fact, even sola gratia, which is what? Grace alone. In fact, look at verses 8 and 9. You're thinking, how are we ever get through 11 verses? Well, we will. We'll, we'll work on this. Everybody, those who are normal members are going, oh, oh here he goes. There's 11 verses. We're never going to get it finished. We will, brother. Look at verse 8. I want you to see this. Solus Christos, Christ alone. Sola fide, my faith alone. Sola gratia, my grace alone. Look at verse 8. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying them hearts by what? By faith, by sola fide, by faith alone. This is how God purifies the heart, by faith alone. There's nothing, there's not faith plus, plus anything. Look at what else we see there, brother. Look at verse 9. Oh, well, well look at verse... Uh, 11. 8, 9, and look at verse number 11. But we believe that through the what? Grace. Sola gratia, the grace of Christ alone. The solars are right here in our text. It's a stunning thing, brother. It's an amazing thing. Look at that. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, sola Christos, we shall be saved even as they. Again, this was Paul's preaching. This is what he always preached. It isn't Christ plus anything. It's not grace plus anything. It's not anything plus anything. It's Christ alone through grace alone. And we see that. This is how one again is justified. In fact, back up to Acts chapter 13, we see again this pattern of Paul. Look there if you would, Acts chapter 13. Look at verse number 38. Look what it says. 
He just got done preaching the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ in the previous verses. And he says this in verse number 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are what? Justified. From all the things that the law of Moses could never justify anyone. It's a stunning thing, isn't it, brother? Now, Paul speaks about the law in a couple terms, doesn't he? We're talking about the ceremonial law here. We are talking about those who would apply it sacerdotally, which means there's some kind of a there's some kind of salvific powers in it. God, the Lord Jesus, did away with that. The other law that we live amongst ourselves, which I wish it was applied more, Paul says is good. It keeps the government restrained. It keeps these things. There's so many good things about it. But Paul here is speaking specifically about trying and adding one thing to your salvation. So the law of Moses, brother, no one could keep it. They couldn't even keep it. Certain men, Paul says, came in to the congregation of Antioch and taught that the Gentiles indeed could become Christians, but only after they were first mingle, you know, circumcised, mingling and submitting to the Jewish rituals, including circumcision. In fact, verse number 5 of Acts 15, look there. This is an amazing thing because I want you to pay attention to the words that are said. Look at verse number 5. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which what? Believed. That's an important word, brother. These men believed. And then what did they do? Look what they did, brother. Saying that it was needful. Which means, brother, and that word needful literally means it is something that is imperative. That in order for one to be saved, it is needful that they first must, what, be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Oh, my. Now think of this, brethren, for just a moment again, as I say. Think of the numerous laws of Moses. Think of the numerous things. Now, that law was good, wasn't it? Of course it was. But what did they do? They added law on top of law on top of law. I mean, it got so amazingly ridiculous. Let me just give you one. They were only allowed, they were not allowed, were they, to travel but a short distance on the, day, on the Sabbath day. It's an interesting thing what men do. Again, religion will wear you out, brother. It really will. So they had flat roofs in Jerusalem. What they would do is they'd lay ladders across the roof, and then they would crawl across the ladder to get to somebody else's home, and then they would say, well, technically we didn't walk, so therefore we haven't broken the law. You understand how crazy that is? But this is what we do. This is what religious people do. Not only is the law good, it is good the way God had laid it down, but men add to it. It's a crazy thing, brother. They said it's needful. I want you to see in verse number two the fighting words of Paul. This is really an amazing thing. Again, this is no laughing matter when it comes to who the door Jesus Christ is and how one is justified before God. This is not a side issue. Let's look at the two words in verse number two. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small what? Dissension. You know what that word means, brother? And men can relate to it, and well, ladies can too. I mean, uh, men, if you're sitting down and someone would come up and say something un unkind about your wife and you're sitting down, what was the first thing you would do? You would stand up, wouldn't you? You'd get up into a fighting position. No one's talking about my wife like that. This is exactly what this word means. That Paul and Barnabas are sitting there preaching the gospel, the half throughout, soul of Christus, all of it. And suddenly these men come in and say, well, there's soul of Christus, plus you've got to do this. 
And literally, that word literally means, it means a disagreement which is violent. To go from sitting to a standing, fighting position. This is what I said earlier. There are many things that we can disagree on, brethren, within Holy Writ. But one thing we cannot disagree on ever is the fundamentals of one being saved. How one is saved is eternal. What one... Oh, brothers. I could go on a tangent. I'm going to control myself. That dissension. A disagreement which is violent to go from sitting to a standing position. This next word we see there is disputation. That word literally means to contend or strive in argumentation in opposition to something. <laughs> you ever had someone when you're, when you're looking at the truths and the fundamentals of Scripture... And, you, and you're arguing. It's okay, brother. It's okay to argue about those things that are fundamental. Don't get weak-kneed and limpy, okay? Don't do that. It's amazing, isn't it? Have you ever been arguing with someone about the fundamentals of Christ, and they just look up at you and say, you're mean-spirited. Yeah. You've got a mean spirit. Yeah. No, actually, I have a loving spirit because I'm concerned about what you're teaching concerning Christ. I'm not mean-spirited. And neither are you if you're contending, if you're standing, and you're fighting for those fundamental things concerning a man's soul or a woman's soul. Brothers, that's not being mean-spirited. That's being what Paul did. He stood up and said, brothers, you can't add that to it. You cannot add that to Christ because it nullifies it all. And brother, listen, as we say often, one little error begets what, brother? Another error. And it begets another error. And you know what happens to the error? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know what else it does? It has a tendency to draw some in. It's an amazing thing. We talked about Paul and his loving shepherdhood last week and how he went back and he's seeing how the brothers are doing. That's part of being a shepherd, to love your people and to go, no, that's dangerous. Stay away because what it does, it has unbelievable ripple effects on every portion of the body. I want you to see this. Now, the Apostle Paul is his first missionary journey, of course. The churches in Galatia were part of that. As he was preaching along, he's again, the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture. And again, if you guys think I'm mean-spirited, <laughs> when it came to Paul and to the glorious gospel, there's none that matched him. None. Think of that, how God took who he was, a man who was injurious to the church, one who hauled Christians off, put them in prison, and killed them. That same, what did you say this morning, how I'm trying to remember, I used the word passion, but that same intensity, that same intensity, God took it and flipped it around and is using it for his glory. The same intensity that he went after the Christians, he's now is defending the faith. Look what he says. Galatians chapter 1. Again, a, a, this brethren, again, is, has to do with a man's soul, where one will spend eternity. Paul stood up and, fight, and was going to fight. Look at verse, if you will, verse number 6. The Bible says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds, again, soul is everywhere. Brother. I mean, it's just in, it's, it's in Scripture. To the grace, uh, let me get back. Of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, any human, any man who would come to you and pervert the gospel in front of you, 
beware. In fact, say to him what Paul says to him. In fact, Paul not only addresses the human realm. Look what he says. If we, or look what an angel from heaven, he even takes the gospel as such a serious matter, not only men, but if an angel would come to you and say, you know, you don't really need to trust in Christ alone. You know, you can, you can do it some other way. Hey, how about a little water on you? Let's dump a little water on you. Let's take you in the tank back over here. Hey, how about that? You'll be saved if you do that. Oh, no, brother. Never. If an angel comes and says it to you, you cast them off by telling them, <coughs> while testing the spirit, right? That's what you do. You test the spirit. But look what he says. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be what? Accursed. That's a mean word. But he doesn't say it once. Look at here, brother, as he continues in the text. And we said before, as we said before, so I, I, I so I now say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you that ye have not received, let him be accursed. Now, brother, you know what those words mean. It literally means to condemn one to hellfire. Literally. Paul says, if you trifle with the gospel, if you preach another gospel, may you be condemned to hellfire. This again, brother, is the importance of our text. This is why when we as Christians, brothers, do you know the gospel? If somebody comes up to you and says some half-baked thing, are you able to defend the gospel of Holy Scripture? Many of you uh, remember our brother R.C. Sproul. You will remember that not too long ago, there was a document that came out called the ECT document. You want some, really some practical use of it? And you remember what they were saying in this document? I'm not trying to be unkind, but brother, Catholics add thousands of things to the gospel. And there's some men who signed on to that thing, and there were three men, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and Kennedy, who said, wait a minute. We're, we can't just by rote say, oh yeah, we're going to just let it all go and all these billions are now my brothers. So they had a meeting, a council. And in that meeting, there were several men sitting there and there was R.C., John MacArthur, and James D. Kennedy. Three of the most sound men you're ever going to find. And they're talking along and J.I. Packard, some of the, again, I've got his books. I, I really appreciate a lot of what he said, but here he is titling up with them, with those guys and when it came down to it, they were having that discussion. You remember what R.C. did? He literally got up on the table, climbed on the table, stood up. If I could, I would do it. And he pointed at, RC, at, uh, at these men and said, Brethren, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about salvation. We can't just by rote say, well, all these things they believe plus the gospel, they're our brothers. You can't do that. We can't do that. That's not mean and unkind. That is being faithful. Yep. Brethren, when a man stands up to preach, you realize that you are the secondary audience. Mm. Amen. You know who the first audience is? God. Amen. And the Lord Jesus Christ is my first audience. And I must be faithful at all costs to what one says across the pulpit and through the word of God and teaching the word of God. You must be faithful at all costs. We've had more people... Well, not today, but we've had a lot of people halfway through the sermons. They'll get up and just tool you right out that door. Brethren, it's not my job to keep them in the pew. Yep. It is my responsibility as a preacher, as an elder in this church, 
to preach faithfully to the sheep who are here listening. Amen. You understand that? Paul's concern was great concerning the souls of these men. It's an amazing thing. In fact, look at Acts 15, verses 6, 7, and 10. It's an amazing thing, brethren. i got to get there. Look at Acts 15. Now, we kind of clump this together because there's certain doctrines, of course, that are spread in the text, and I want to tie them together. Look at verses 6 and 7 of our text. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, is that word again, what did Peter do? Again, the idea of rising up. Peter rose up, the Bible says, and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What is the word of the gospel, brethren? Sola Scriptura. Paul preached the word of God. Here again, the solas, right here. Right in our text. Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Scriptura, Sola Christus, all of them. Right there. This is what he leaned on. This is what he preached. And brethren, this is what we as sound Bible believers should rely upon. Look there again, 6 and 7. Look at verse number 10. It's, it's an amazing thing, brethren. As I said, religion will wear you out. It will just absolutely destroy you. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, why what? Tempt ye God. Oh, brother, that is such a staggering statement. This is what they're doing. They are tempting the Lord God of heaven. It's an amazing thing when you consider this. Read on there. Now therefore, why tempt ye God and put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Again, brother, Peter stands up and declares that the Gentiles heard the gospel, sola scripturia, and believed the gospel. That God is circumcising the Gentiles, brother, listen, through the Spirit and not with the knife. Right. Do you see the difference? Religion, God's Christianity. One is trying to work their way. One is, Peter's saying, God is not circumcising that. He's not circumcising with the knife. It's the Spirit of God that's circumcising the inner man, the heart, which is where the change must take place. It's amazing. And then he says, hey, look at this here. He's, what you guys are actually doing by insisting on the ritual of law is tempting God himself and judging his glorious actions. Oh, my brothers. We read over that thing. We don't even realize what that means for one to tempt God in this area. Literally, the Judaizers are saying that God is not doing enough. Yep. Nor is he doing it right. Therefore, we must add to what God is doing. Think of this, brother. How spooky that is. I mean, if you're a true Christian, a Bible believer, that statement is going to really make you wonder and ponder and pause. Man, they are tempting God. Think of that for a moment. Thinking all the while that they're doing the will of God. But rather they are fighting God. They are exactly the opposite of what they think they are doing. By adding this thing to what they're doing. They are yoking. They are joining, binding, mingling that which they could not bear 
brethren, can I say it again? This is what religion will do to you. All I got to do is work a little harder. All I got to do is one more thing. All I got to do is crawl on my knees up the Vatican stairs as Luther. Trying to get rid of his sin. He just could not. He had this bear, this weight, this yoke. And they kept telling him, do this, do that, do this, do that. And he said, I kept coming back. I can't do it. It's still there. And finally, God in his gloriousness, brother, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. God in his glorious saving faith has Martin Luther read this text. Look at verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Look at verse 17. The Lord gloriously took his scripture, sola scriptura, opened up Luther's heart and his eyes to what really removes the bondage of sin, the yoke of sin. And it's not all of your religious works. All it does is wear you out. Can I say, by the time we're all done, Pastor Mike said we're wore out. <laughs> you will be wore out if you are trying to work your way to a place you can never get to. Amen. I've said it a thousand times, brother, even if, even if you knew every sin of transgression that you have committed, and you were able to confess every sin that you have transgressed, which you can't, let me just lay this on you. There is no way that you will ever know the sin of omission. You will never know what you should have done, and you didn't do it. You'll never know that, therefore you can't confess it. That sin is on you, and will cling to you, and damn you to hell forever. That's why Luther, they told him to do all of these works, all of these things. And God has him read these words. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by what? Faith. And where did he get that from? He pulled it out of the Old Testament. It's a, it's a quote from Habakkuk. I mean, look, brothers, it's always by faith. It's through the scriptures alone. Amen? Amen. By Christ's meritorious work alone. By faith alone. To the glory of God alone. Think of this, brother, for a moment. You liken back, and we don't have time. I know I need to. I need to be finished up, and will be finished up. But sometime when you get a minute, go read Ezekiel chapter thirty-six. Some brother just sent that sermon to me by Paul Washer. I hadn't listened to that in years, and I was listening to it, and I said, "Yeah, I forgot about the glory of God in all of this." You go read there sometime, right? John 3 is connected. That's what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. He's talking about Ezekiel 36. That's what he's talking about. What do you mean I can be, I'm going to be washed? What do you mean born again? What, what is all this stuff? And he points them back to Ezekiel 36. And it's in that text where you see the glory of God on display. What does he tell them there? You know what? I'm going to save you not based on what you're doing. 
but based on who I am. I'm going to save you in spite of your sin, in spite of yourself. That's grace. That's grace alone, brother. There ain't no working. There ain't no way to do it. Let's close with this glorious words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Let me not leave this burden upon you this morning. Let me read these glorious words to you this morning. Matthew chapter 11. The glorious words that flowed from our Savior's lips concerning this very thing. Men trying to yoke people down with religion. Look at what Jesus says concerning his yoke. Matthew 11, verse number 28. We will read there, brethren. Come unto me. It's a great invitation for one to come. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Anybody here this morning stuck in their religion? I implore you to turn to Christ. Turn to him. The invitation is to come unto me. You who are labor and heavy burden. You can't work your way there. That yoke will stay. The yoke that our text they were trying to lay on top of those other brothers. This yoke will stay there until you meet Christ. Look at what he says as we close. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brother, this is the gloriousness of God. That men down through the ages of time have tried to work their way to him. From the Tower of Babel all the way to our text this morning, men have tried to work their way to God. You cannot do it. You will be wearied. You will be tired. And by the time it's all finished, brother, you will be in hell. Mm -hmm. But if you turn, if you repent, now again, you can't repent of all your sins because you don't know what they all are, but you can repent if God is working in your mind and in your heart. You can repent concerning who he is. <laughs> repent for the kingdom of heaven. is That's what Jesus said, right? Repent. That word, nobody even wants to talk about that word. Repent. Change your mind concerning who he is. Trust in him. Through faith alone. Amen? Amen. And you will find rest. Your religious work will be gone. It's a stunning thing. Like Paul said, come, rest with us a while. Amen? Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are so thankful for the Bible. So thankful for your word and the power that it contains. We thank you for the clear gospel message that is woven from the book of Genesis all the way, all the way to Revelation chapter 22. Come buy wine and milk for free. Salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is free. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. 
It is something that God in his sovereign will and work bestows upon the heart that he opens and the eyes that he opens and the, the heart to understand. It's really a stunning thing that one can be as Paul was and as I was, an injurious, rebellious, whoremonger, hating Christ and running from Christ. And that he, that you, that the Spirit of God, as we prayed this morning, the elders together, and not by any pride or pride is wicked, it's evil. This is not meant in that way. It is meant in thankfulness and gratitude that God, that you would think upon us, that you would, and the billions and billions of people who have lived this morning as we are gathered together, if you're saved, it's because he chose you. He loved us first. That's why we love him. Father, we pray for those who are yet to come to Christ. We pray that they will let go of their religion. Now, there is a good biblical. James speaks of that. That's something different. I'm talking about religion where one is trying to be saved by it. May you take that shackle, that yoke, off. May they hear the gospel. May they believe in Christ alone by faith alone. That they might be saved for eternity. Seal. Oh, Father, we pray for them. Father, I pray for the brethren this morning, too, who are here. I pray that the word of God this morning has been edifying to them. I pray that as they have heard the word, that it is just solidifies in them your glorious work and what you are doing. And Father, we pray that as we have heard these words, that we will, as has already been prayed that you will continue to transform us more and more into the image of your beloved Son. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your long-suffering, your kindness to us. Father, we love you. And now as we gather around the table, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to remember what you have done for us. We come to remember who we are, who we were, and who we are yet to be as we think of the golden chain of redemption. Those he called, those he predestined, those he justified, he will and he That's all in the past tense. That language is all in the past tense. You will also glorify. Paul's speaking there as though it already happened because it has an eternal halls of heaven because we are safe and secure and sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit hand of the Father. We thank you now and pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said.